Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. Some time back, my seven-year-old daughter and her classmates were asked by their teacher to share a report on a local outing of their choosing. I suggested to my daughter that we pay a visit to the nature reserve at Booterstown Marsh, not far from where we live. We packed some treats into a rucksack and took with us the green and yellow binoculars she'd got from Santa. We observed a gathering of wading birds and focused on the whitest one of them all, a little egret, a cousin of the bigger and more familiar grey heron. We videoed the little egret on my phone, watched the video together and my daughter gave me the thumbs up. And I was a bird watcher again, sharing the joy with my child. There's a grace and beauty about birds. Indeed, a poetry. Think Keats's Nightingale, Shelley's Skylark, or the one that stands out for me, the soaring kestrel so praised by Gerard Manley Hopkins in his sonnet The Windhover. How he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy, then off, off forth on swing. And yes, it really is all about the wings. My daughter and I talk of all the places those wings can take even the tiniest bird, and of how sometimes strange birds can fly in from faraway countries. I don't tell her about the twitchers, that grown-up competitive breed of birdwatcher that always strives for a chance sighting of a rare species. I don't have the time to be one of those. And anyway, as Simon Barnes points out in his endearing book How to Be a Bad Birdwatcher, the joy of watching birds is that we are revelling in nature, not hunting for scalps. The birdwatcher that I am will enjoy a good peek at the little egret in Booterstown Marsh, even if it's the same bird as I saw last week, and the same one I will be looking at again next week. But all birdwatchers will relish the challenge of identifying the birds they see. For me, it all started on a January Saturday, back when I was eight and growing up in Cork. My mother, an environmental enthusiast long before her time, took my brother and me to visit Kilcolman Wildfowl Refuge near Mallow. The owners, the late Richard and Margaret Ridgway, showed us to a hide and telescope through which we watched innumerable geese, ducks and other wading birds congregating at a large pond looking like they were having the time of their lives. I was captivated. Back home, I matched the birds I saw with those in my mother's dog-eared second edition of the Collins Field Guide to the Birds of Britain and Europe. In time, I would gain experience with visits to the internationally renowned Bird Observatory on Cape Clear Island in County Cork's far southwest. On the island's cliffs, for example, you can witness massive movements of seabirds, particularly in bad weather. And its pretty gardens offer shelter to migrants and not a few rare species, blown off course by Atlantic gales. Thankfully still thriving, the observatory offers comfortable, inexpensive accommodation for visiting birdwatchers. It's the perfect place for the apprentice to learn from the experts. But the joy of birdwatching can be experienced anywhere there are birds to be found. It's as easy as putting out a bird feeder and some water in the garden, if you have one, or even on a windowsill. This will encourage the birds to come. Like one of my daughter's favourites, the daddy blackbird with his bright yellow bill. I'm very pleased that my daughter shares my interest in birdwatching. Female birdwatchers were once the lesser-known species. The authors of that Collins Field Guide were the distinguished ornithologists Roger Peterson, Guy Mountfort and Philip Hollam, and they dedicated it, and I quote, to our long-suffering wives. 
But the world is different now, and more modern iterations of the Collins Field Guide contain no such sentiments. But back to that little egret my daughter and I observed in Booterstown Marsh. Had my eight-year-old self seen a little egret in Kilcolman all those years ago, it would have been national news. Well, national birdwatching news. At that time, the little egret was a mainly Mediterranean species and hardly ever recorded in Ireland. Now, it's a permanent resident here, its northward expansion no doubt influenced by climate change. Right now, though, I won't burden my child with any stark truths. Let's just enjoy the little egret's company. I think I'm getting a bit of a name for myself, going around to off-licences looking for baby sham. That retro fizzy drink spelling romance and sparkle like no other imposter. Do I present as a poor wandering soul thrown off course from the 70s? A stray in a bewildered search for this iconic beverage from the past. You're going back a bit in time now, the kinder assistants venture as their eyes betray wariness. I can see them mentally calculate the likelihood of trouble as this encounter unfolds. A woman in her 60s, clearly in a time warp and hell-bent on reliving her youth, might not be one to tangle with. I'm pointed in the direction of all sorts of fizzy counterfeits as I begin my meandering tale about the little yellow deer motif on the bottle. If the assistant had a mind to listen, I could divulge all sorts of engaging details about Baby Sham. Tell him how the heady days of post-war Britain convinced the canny brewer Herbert Showering of Shepton Mallet, Somerset, that the time was right for the invention of this trailblazing drink for women, a concoction as alluring and glamorous as champagne. These doughty dames who had been conscripted into work of national importance, driving trucks, cutting lumber and saving the harvest when their menfolk were tackling Hitler, could hardly revert to pre-war days when they couldn't order a drink for themselves in a bar. The days when a lady would savour demure sips of port and lemon or a feisty dowger sup a glass of milk stout for medicinal purposes were over. As the writer Philip Norman states in his autobiography, Baby Sham Night, a memoir of the 50s, Baby Sham was a heady sip of the high life for 1950s women. The first drink a woman could order for herself without feeling like a hussy or a crone. 1953 saw the fashioning of this new beverage, the iconic Baby Sham, all fun and sparkle and cheery pizzazz. 
the marketing people were up to speed as they devised a brand to woo the hearts of television viewers who tuned into ITV to see the first items advertised on the new medium. Colgate toothpaste with its promise of freshness and Baby Sham with its alluring and inspirational promise of the high life. This Genuine Champagne Perry, as it was called, was poured from a little glass bottle into the saucer-shaped champagne glass specially designed to forge the glamorous association between the two fizzies. That association and the claim that the effervescence of fermented pear juice glittered with a diamond sparkle made Baby Sham the drink of choice for the ladies. The catchphrase and very clever marketing slogan, I'd love a baby sham, was on the lips of every lady, whether sporting a Mary Quant bob or a head full of curling pins under a chiffon scarf. Such was the success of this feminine brand that the brewery at Shepton Mallet boasted the fastest bottling line in the world, peaking in 1973 with the hourly production of 144,000 bottles. The little deer motif featured on the bottle and replicated on the saucer glass certainly added to the allurement of the brand. He underwent a few incarnations from speckled brown to the bright yellow creature that now prances on the trademark sky blue label. The jaunty blue ribbon tied in a bow around his neck remains the same. This motif is modelled, apparently, on the Chinese water deer, a smaller version of the roe deer, with fluffy ears and little black button nose that evokes the memory of a favourite teddy bear. The similarity to Walt Disney's Bambi is also unmistakable. The twinkling eyes, winsome smile and spindly legs are all designed to charm and disarm. Whatever his origins, he's a sprightly fellow, a party animal fawn, all frisky pizzazz in trademark yellow, his dainty hoofs raised in a playful prance through the froth and fizz. I can just imagine the wonderful sight of the pear orchards around Shepton Mallet, where thousands of acres were devoted to the growing of the specially grafted pears to produce baby sham in its heyday. The Showering Brothers imported the Wasser pear from Switzerland, where it was a central ingredient in the production of a pear liqueur. This was then grafted with a native variety of peri pear to produce the necessary for baby sham. I can picture myself as a Somerset lass working hard on the bottling line. Sadly, that's another incarnation washed away by time and tide. That old retro elixir baby sham recently featured on the big screen in the film Empire of Light. This romantic drama celebrates the power of music, cinema and community and stars Colin Firth and Olivia Colman. She plays the melancholic heroine, Hilary, who raises a glass of baby sham to the fireworks, ushering in 1981. It's not Moe, she declares, but it's better than Tizer. 
I welcome the news that the showering brewers have reacquired the immortal Baby Sham brand and look forward to the day when I can say again, I'd love a Baby Sham. What would you like to drink, darling? Oh, I'd love a Baby Sham. Hey. I'd love a baby sham. On February 26, 1972, Edson Arantes de Nascimento, better known as Pele, came to Dalymount Park in Fibsborough. He lined out in an exhibition match for his club side Santos against a combined Bohemians Drumcondra 11 selection. This was quite a media event, as the Brazilian legend was widely regarded as the greatest footballer the world had ever seen. But what makes this occasion resonant for me is that, aged 11, I was there, brought by my often unavailable father. My dad worked long unsociable hours as a bus conductor to keep us in relatively frugal comfort. Ma, often irritated by last-minute phone calls to inform her that he was doing a double day, complained that we never saw him. But as far as he was concerned, he was just keeping the show on the road. Providing for us was his way of showing his love. As he used to say, I rare two gentlemen and a lady, these being my elder brother, my elder sister and myself. Pelé, from equally humble origins, through three marriages and several affairs, fathered seven children. Santos were a club side of modest means and, realising they had a prize asset on their hands, began gruelling tours all over the world, arranging friendlies against any local team that would do a deal with them in order to milk their cash cow. Santos rejected all transfer offers for their superstar, and the Brazilian government even passed a bill declaring Pelé a national treasure, effectively blocking him from ever departing the land of the Holy Cross for a more remunerative top-flight European side. Thus, his appearance with his teammates at Daily Mount. As an indentured workhorse with an exhausting schedule, Pele didn't have a lot of spare time for family life with his kids. A son by his first marriage, Adinho, was jailed for 12 years in 2014 for laundering money from drug trafficking, although his famous father always maintained that this was a miscarriage of justice. For most of his life, Pele didn't even acknowledge his eldest daughter, Sandra Machado, even after her death in 2006, nor her two children, Octavio and Gabriel. However, Shortly before he died, he requested to meet his grandsons, and he recognised all seven children in his will. My father's staunch Roman Catholicism, which led to a growing distance between us during my teenage years, would have forbidden him from marrying more than once, let alone having affairs. But Pelé too was a Catholic, albeit evidently a la carte. He finally left Santos at the age of 34, past his competitive prime, signing for the New York Cosmos, where he played from 1975 to 1977. In New York, he enjoyed the high life, becoming a regular at Studio 54 and earning more money during his three years with the Cosmos than he had in his entire career at Santos. My da, in contrast, didn't get to kick back until he retired aged 65, claiming the statutory old age pension and a small annuity from CIE. The Daily Mount match was no great spectacle, with the Sunday Independent headline dubbing the star attraction the Fibsborough Flop. My 11-year-old self remembers it rather differently. 
The full-time score was 3-2 to Santos, but two incidents stand out in my memory. The first was when a Santos defender, facing his own goal, chose to head the ball against the post before turning to clear the rebound away. This was true exhibition stuff, worthy of the Harlem Globetrotters. The other was when a shot wide wound up in our area of the stand behind the goal and a dozen hands stretched out to touch the ball that Pelé had touched. Mine was one of them. My father did bring me other places when I was a child, to Tora Tora Tora, an epic war film about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbour, and on an annual busman's pilgrimage to Knock Shrine, which he organised, when I was the only boy among a coachful of middle-aged men. However, when I challenged him later, during my disaffected adolescence, about not seeing enough of him when I was growing up, his immediate response was, didn't I bring it to see Pelé? Perhaps Pelé was the best footballer the world has ever seen, even if he was not always the world's best dad. Maybe my father was the world's best dad, despite his enforced absences, and even if there are millions of drinking mugs which proclaim this slogan for countless numbers of men. Like Pelé, he worked hard and did his best. Within the boundaries of one's allotted talents and the opportunities that present themselves, isn't that all anyone can do for their children? Thanks, Dad, for everything. Most of all, thanks for bringing me to see Pelé. Just over two years ago, I made my first tentative foray onto social media and joined Instagram. Quickly, I became so absorbed in what I found there that my endless scrolling turned into a guilty obsession. Now, when my children or husband enter the room and groan at the sight of me, I rush to put the phone away like the addict that I am. What's captured my interest so completely are videos of animals. Through the astonishing range of these videos on Instagram, you get an insight into the sheer diversity of ways people view animals and their place in the world. Most common, of course, are the homages to pets, those animals that we choose to, paternalistically perhaps, bring into our lives. We love them and through loving them find our lives enhanced. But you won't just find videos of cats, dogs and guinea pigs. Wild animals are also pulled into the domestic sphere. There's the Dubai billionaire businessman who regularly shares moments with his lions. Capivaras and sloths are increasingly gaining popularity in both North and South America. Now, to me, the idea of placing animals such as these in domestic environments, while their wild relatives are losing their wild environments, is deeply problematic. These pet videos provide a stark contrast to those of animals that occupy the marginal spaces of human cities and other urban spaces. Often these feature dogs or cats subsisting on foraged foods and suffering from various illnesses or injuries. 
Many Western countries have decided that there's no place for animals like these in their societies and routinely round up and euthanise strays. It has fallen to individuals and organisations to rescue, rehabilitate them and find homes for them. However, there are some countries where animals living autonomous lives alongside human beings are tolerated. When I visited Istanbul a few years ago, it was interesting to see stray dogs and cats living peacefully alongside humans in the city. Many people make accommodations for them and acts of kindness towards them are commonplace. Many of these videos feature moments of compassion which are a joy to observe. Busy city streets coming to a standstill so that a wild boar mother or duck can safely shepherd her young across. People navigating raging torrents so that they can save a stranded animal. I've seen two men on screen perform a death-defying act of bravery so that they could reach a stray dog before it got washed away in a flood. Or how about this? Somewhere off Antarctica, a dinghy full of tourists looked on as a killer whale ruthlessly hunted a penguin. The penguin leaped out of the water onto the dinghy, but missed, falling back in. Without a moment's hesitation, a passenger reached down and scooped up the penguin, saving its life. While you may not ever get the full context from any one video, watching these scenes of people who, on the face of it, are willing to respond to an animal's need, renews my faith in humanity. However, most intriguing to me is the friendship shown by animals to other animals and to humans. Now, I'm not an ethologist, but it is clear to me that many animals are highly emotional beings. Animals know joy, love and sorrow and express it freely, and I've an arsenal of videos to prove it. Take the long-horned cow who, witnessing the distress of a giant tortoise stranded on its back, used its horn to flip the tortoise and then nonchalantly walks away. Many unexpected interspecies friendships have also been documented. Some form because the animals are raised together within a human environment such as a home or zoo. But unexpected relationships have been observed in the wild. Scientists tend to describe these relationships as symbiotic or mutualistic, where both are benefiting materially, but purely social relationships based on friendship and affection also appear to occur. Take the coyote and badger, who regularly forage together at night, or the narwhal, who has become an honorary member of a beluga whale pod. I've always been fascinated by animals. I still adore Beatrix Potter's illustrations. I suppose these videos have taken their place in my adult life. But it seems to me that some of what we consider the best parts of human nature, like love and altruism, are present in abundance in the animal kingdom. In fact, I would go so far as to echo the view of one of the people I follow on Instagram who regularly comments that we simply don't deserve them. We're your friends, we're your friends, we're your friends to the bitter end. The bitter end. When you're alone. When Around Who comes around to pluck you up? To 
I was six years of age when a McQueen spare was broadcast by Television for the first time in 1963. I'm not sure if I ever had any interest in wildlife before that. Living on the edge of Inglis West, we were close to green fields and farmlands, but my childhood memories would be of chasing cows and running from the farmer whose life had changed so drastically with the arrival of a massive corporation housing estate. We would traipse through his fields daily during the hot summers of my childhood. We went in a straight line from our homes to the cool waters of the Tolka River. Neither thick hedgerows nor barbed wire fences could divert our onward march. We caught pinkings under Cardiff's bridge, paddled in the shallows called the Silver Spoon and swam with the big boys on bends in the river we christened Scouts and Elbow. And with Queen Spare would change my view of those fields and that splendid river Tolka. They became hunting grounds for kingfishers and dippers, foxes, badgers, rabbits and stoats, and beautiful birds with nests of tiny, multicoloured eggs. And with Queen Spare kept me out under the sky. My favourite part of the programme was when Gerrit van Geldren, with great ease and apparent great speed, sketched the subjects of the day. The images appeared on the screen, drawn line by line, transforming a blank sheet of paper into a work of art. The Dutch naturalist and filmmaker, who made Ireland his home, would illustrate the essential markings of each bird, which would help the novice identify it accurately. With a decade of years behind me, I teamed up with other young budding bird watchers on the street. And before long, our days were filled with adventures on the banks of the Tolka and on escapades to Ashtown and further towards Blanchardstown. On our streets, we knew sparrows, maggers, jackers and waggers. But in the fields, we found warblers and kestrels and long-tailed tits. As the seasons changed, we watched for migrating birds. With our newly gained knowledge, we started to notice flocks of wintering fieldfares, members of the Trush family. They are easily distinguished by their grey rump. One spring, while my friends were looking for nests, they noticed a Trush with a grey rump fly into a bush. On close inspection, they saw a nest. This was remarkable news if it was a field fair, as they should have returned to Scandinavia to breed. There was great excitement within our small group and it was decided to contact the Mugfeen Spare and see what they thought. I don't think we really expected a response, but a couple of days later a Land Rover with a rubber dinghy on its roof pulled up on our street and outstepped Gerrit van Geldren. I watched him get out of the Land Rover with the same awe as I had watched Neil Armstrong step out of Apollo 11 onto the moon. Gareth Van Geldren wanted Leo and Stevie and Kevin and me to bring him to the nest. We barreled into the Land Rover and slowly drove down our street, heading for the river road. The nest was in the private grounds of Ashtown Lodge, 
the Den Walton estate, which we regularly trespassed on. Our new hero was first over the fence. We observed the mother thrush coming and going, and then Gerrit van Geldren headed for the nest and took out a fledgling. He held the bird on the ground, belly down, and spread its wings. Then he quickly took a series of photographs before returning the bird to the nest and taking us all away. This was better than we ever could have imagined, and it wasn't over yet. We drove down to a nearby bridge over the Tolka and watched for dippers and kingfishers. There were bird droppings on the wall. With his thumb and forefinger, he gently rolled the droppings apart. I tried to close my gaping mouth and then he revealed to us the seeds from the fruit the bird had fed on. He was about to explain something to us when a shotgun sounded nearby. Blaggard, he said. This was getting better every minute. Blaggard, I repeated, but maybe not loud enough for anyone to actually hear. A cold tit appeared. I admitted I'd never seen one before. Gerrit van Geldren reached into his pocket and took out a matchbox. He tore the box and on the back he started to draw. It was slower than on the telly, but nonetheless enthralling. He drew the top half of a small bird with a white stripe on its head. You'll always know it again, he said, from that stripe. And then he handed me the drawing. I don't really remember a whole lot after that. He must have driven us home. We must have thanked him and maybe even shook hands as we waved goodbye. But it's all a blur. It wasn't a field fair's nest, I'm sure of it now. But Gary van Geldren never gave us that bad news. He gave us hope and courage and knowledge and a matchbox sketch that I treasured for years and years and somehow can't find now. But every time I see one of those little birds with the white stripe on the back of his head, I think of that wonderful day when Gerrit van Geldren stepped onto our planet. Shanach Nere von Farahor Kinte, Govakashi e, Nurkashi egen vinog, ilor nahiha, Anel kolata eg elu uhi. Fui holes shave na galli, Agus garad ton lampish roider, a moher mohor, ri rodegen haragata. Niravanak splank oben, Akvishi kinte kor shanach avion. A erable, a yeachracht, Agus a smacht. Er hor via, er hor na cohawale, egamacht la fauna mar haivsha. Gachainya in a gulla, se shroid valia, ach isha. Agasan shanach. Dat a creela hahas, la ha haigla garda, dardiga kyan la dokas, e kasadir a laba, chinikshir, shalgrene hiha, 
gashkiach an vohrin, lubrana skahane, eg banu gach oit lena hlatin driachte. Fox. The watcher wasn't certain she had seen him when she stood at the window in the middle of the night, sleep eluding her. Under the gentle light of the moon and near the street light out on the road, something ran past her gate. It was only a sudden flash, but she was certain it was a fox. His tail, his intensity and his control in the search for food, in the search for sustenance, moving down the hill like a ghost. Everyone in the village asleep except for her and the fox. Her heart swelled with happiness, her face spread with a smile, her head lifted with hope as she turned towards her bed. She thought of him, hunter of the night, warrior of the laneway, creeper of the shadows, blessing everywhere with his little wand. On this morning's edition of Sunday Miscellany, we heard Bird Watching with My Daughter by Fergal O'Doul. Then I'd Love a Baby Sham by Margaret Galvin. After that, Pele and the World's Best Dad by Desmond Trainer. Then Instagram Animals by Anne-Marie Durkin. From the recent archive, The Day Garrett Van Gelderen Stepped Onto Planet Fingless by Brian Farrell. And finally, Shunnoch or Fox, a poem by Catherine Foley. This morning's music featured On Wings of Song by Mendelssohn, played on harp by Sebastian Lippmann. Little April Shower from the film Bambi, and before that an extract from a 1980s ad for Baby Sham. Maj Kainada by Georges Benjour, featuring Milos Karadaglic on solo guitar with the Simon Bolivar Youth Orchestra of Venezuela. That's what friends are for from the Jungle Book film, and finally, The Lark in the Clear Air, played by Fanula Hunt on violin with Una Hunt on piano. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binchy. You can listen back to this morning's programme on the RTE Radio Player or at rte.ie forward slash radio one. You can also follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, all the usual podcast platforms. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.